RushOrderTees.com has been Philadelphia's number one custom apparel company since 2002. Whether you need one or a thousand shirts, Rush Order Tees can handle any order on any deadline. Start designing online today in their online design studio or give them a call at 1-800-620-1233. That's RushOrderTees.com, Philadelphia's home for custom apparel. Welcome to the 76 Capital Leadership Series. My name is Wayne Kimmel, the managing partner of 76 Capital and your host for our really, really exciting show that we're going to bring on today. We have a really great guest in Charles Grantham. I'm super excited to have him join our 76 Capital Leadership Series today. As you know, on our 76 Capital Leadership Series, what do we do? We talk with entrepreneurs, we talk with executives, we talk with athletes, and we hear their stories. We hear the backstories of what they've done and also where they see the industry going. Because what's happening with this, within sports today, things are changing so quickly. There's so many exciting things that are happening within the world of sports tech, within the world of esports, within the world of sports betting, within the world of NIL, which is name, image, and likeness. How will all these things play out? What's going to happen with the overall sports industry as things continue to move forward? And those are the conversations that we're going to have today on our show. My producer of the show is James Santor. It's always great to have James making sure that everything's you know, working back at the studio. And it's, it's, an, it's really amazing for us. So please follow all the things that we do on, on social media. 76 Capital can be found all across LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, um, Twitter, Find us at 76 Capital and find me at Wayne Kimmel. We talk about all the latest things that are happening within the sports world. And of course, we always look to find you as the entrepreneur. We want to invest in you. And if you're doing something that's new, if you're incredibly passionate about the sports industry, if you're really smart, if you're nice and you want to truly change the world, reach out to us at 76 Capital. We'd love to talk with you. So my guest today on the show is Charles Grantham, as I said earlier, really excited to have him. He's the director of the Center for Sport Management at Seton Hall University Stillman School of Business. He's a basketball Hall of Famer. It adds to our list of Hall of Famers that we've had on our show. This is really exciting to have him join our show. He's the former union, union executive with the NBA Players Association. He's represented or advised a lot of NBA players, including Charles Oakley, Amari Stoudemire and Tobias Harris, and he has some really great stories, and I'm excited to bring him onto our show. Charles, welcome to our 76 Capital Leadership Series. Well, thank you for having me, Wayne. I uh, look forward to our discussion. Well, it's really great to have you, and you know, it's it's one of these things where you know it's really been an honor for me to be able to sit down and have conversations with the leaders in sports. People who have really done incredible things over their career and are really pushing things forward right now because there's so much opportunity. So before we get into some of those really exciting things that are happening, I want to hear kind of a little bit about you, uh, where you grew up, a little bit of your story. And uh, that I think that would be really exciting for our audience. Well, you know, I grew up in a little town called Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. It's not too far north of northeast of uh, Philadelphia. Um, I spent my uh, junior high and high school years there. Was a participant in sports, uh, all the major sports: football, basketball, baseball, and track. And uh, you know, those were the days when we didn't specialize so much. You you came in and you 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 sort of became a an all around participant in in all the sports at that time. Uh, once I once I graduated and, and you know, from Bethlehem, PA, I got a lot of good uh, friends and, and, and just an understanding of a good education as well throughout the school system there. And then went on to a place called Cheney State University. It's part of the Pennsylvania State College system and uh, played basketball there. Um, and for me, it was a, a ideal place to go because it was the oldest, most historic, uh, historically black college. It was uh, the first uh, historical black college since 19, I think it was 1837 to be exact. So it was a good education and a good opportunity to get an understanding of my background from 
where I came and who was I and how did I fit into this thing called the civilization and 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 where did I get my inclination to be a, a an athlete and and try all at the same time balance that with an education and, and what kind of future was there for me Pennsylvania at that time and, and the system that they had called the Pennsylvania State System uh, primarily focused on teaching and education and initially my hopes were to be a coach and to go to Cheney and get an education and then eventually teach school. Uh, on the way, we had a great uh, a great basketball team there. We won the state championship, was nationally ranked in small colleges and uh, several players I was able to play with went on to become professionals in the ABA and some in the uh, NBA. Um, upon leaving Cheney, I coached and taught school at a place called Darby Colwyn, Pennsylvania, Darby Colwyn School District. And it was great because I got a chance to do something that I had planned to do, had trained to do, strong interests. I ended up coaching football, basketball, track, met a lot of great young people, um, but also recognized that teaching at that time and I was a young married uh, guy at the time, was not financially able to, to, to support the, the interests and the needs of my family and sought to go into a business as an opportunity and uh, pursued opportunities with General Electric in particular. And I went to work with them as a recruitment uh, specialists. And at that time, um, there was a lot of energy around uh, integrating the uh, sciences and in the uh, engineering field, etc. And that's where my first assignment uh, initiated. And I uh, was really able to, to learn a lot about uh, business, about uh, wages, hours, and working conditions of the various uh, employees, got involved in marketing, good understanding of labor management, labor relations. And one thing I noticed while I was there is that if in fact the prospects of doing more in the field of business, I needed more education. And consequently, I went back to the Wharton School of Business, the University of Pennsylvania there in, in Philadelphia, and studied, uh, studied business for a couple of years. And during that time was still looking to see where in fact I could incorporate my business training with sports. And uh, since I had relationships with young other people, other athletes at the time who were much better than I and went on to become professionals in the NBA. When I would see them occasionally, they would ask me what I was doing. And I would simply say, look, I'm, I'm in business school and I'm, I'm actually studying and, and, and trying to figure out how I can apply some of the things I'm learning here at the Wharton School. But the business of sport and probably particularly the business of basketball. They invited me up to speak to the council of their respective union called the National Basketball Players Association. And I went up and I met with uh, Larry Fleischer, who at the time was the general counsel. And by then I had also become the uh, director of, of admissions and financial aid at the graduate school there at Penn, the Wharton School. And we were able to work out a, an arrangement that uh, as I visited the various uh, NBA cities that, that I essentially would explain to the players what their rights were under this thing called the collective bargaining agreement, which uh, clearly as you began to uh, learn about the relationship between management and labor, you realize that that's sort of like the Bible of professional sports. Uh, and that was, uh, that was a good entry level position. I consulted for the first couple of years before I became a uh, executive vice president, their first executive vice president actually. 
because as an organization, they were also growing. And I think one of the things that I helped them do was to become more of a multifaceted organization, to get involved in educational opportunities for the players to, to, to also impact in, in the social justice issue in area of uh, social responsibility. At the same time, uh, giving them a good solid understanding of the business of sport, but more in particular, the business of basketball and how these leagues worked, how they generated revenue, where their sources of revenue actually came from. And as a player, as a player, uh, what share of that revenue was fair and equitable and how would it be distributed and what kind of salaries and protections could the union advance on behalf of these players? So, so that, that's sort of a summary of how I got started in this field uh, and, and sort of how I sort of started to move forward. I, I think one of the things that were very interesting is that I did that in 1976. And in 1976, there was this thing called the ABA and NBA rivalry. And the two leagues um, merged in 1976. So, so one of the things that we had to face pretty quickly here is and initially we opposed the merger because we wanted to make sure that all the players were able to enter a marketplace where their talent would dictate the highest price for their wage. And as long as the two leagues were competing with each other, that kind of a salary market for players was outstanding. But then it began to be pretty clear that some of these teams were uh, having financial difficulty and there became this question of whether or not the government would let them merge at some point. And to merge these two leagues, you also had to have a understanding among the players of the ABA and the NBA that this was also good for them as well as a basketball. And that was a challenge. That was a challenge because on the one hand, the merger suggested an ending of competition between two leagues for the best talent. On the other hand, I think the charge that was presented to us is that if in fact there's going to be a merger, how can we still maintain a level of free agency or a level of demand for their services that still compensate them well? And that became a major legal challenge as well. Well, Charles, it's amazing to have you on the show. Again, our guest today on our 76 Capital Leadership Series is Charles Grantham, the director of the Center of Sports Management at Seton Hall University's Stillman School of Business. And as you heard, has done some incredible things in his career uh, leading up to uh, what he's doing now at Seton Hall. And Charles, I mean, one of the things that we love to talk about on our 76 Capital Leadership Series is who are some of the leaders or mentors in your life? Who are some of the people that kind of helped you get to where you are today? Well, you know, I had some, I, I, I happen to be a very lucky individual. Um, it was just my mother and I growing up, so I didn't really have a father's presence, but it appeared that every stop for me, whether it's the, whether it was the boys club of Bethlehem, or was it Little League Baseball or junior high school, or even high school, I, I had coaches and adults who helped me immensely in terms of my development, not only as an athlete, but as a person. And, and how um, I could begin looking forward to integrating both your education and your athletics to give you a well-rounded presentation. Um, and, but but I, I do have to single out two people in college. My, uh, my initial freshman and sophomore year at Cheney, I had a coach who was a, I think he went to the University of Minnesota, was a outstanding football player there was probably one of the first black all Americans that had played football at the University of Minnesota. And uh, he, he helped me understand that giving was as much as uh, taking. And, and, and uh, I, I can often recall, uh, Cheney is located in a very interesting locale in, 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 in uh, suburban Philadelphia. There was a prison not too far from our campus, and there was also a school for young boys, delinquent boys. 
And I can recall him sitting down talking to me said, and, and saying, okay, you're playing basketball. He was not really a great basketball coach, by the way. He was a football guy. But then we had a losing team. But at the same time, he would not let me forget that every Saturday morning, I want you to come with me and we're going to visit both the prison and the boys' school. And we're going to official, officiate and, and, and coach these young people about basketball. And uh, no matter what you were doing on Friday night, you know, Saturday morning, you had to be up early because he was going to be there to take you and have you work. That was such a learning experience for me. I never forgot that because it, it enabled you to see those who were less fortunate and who had circumstances that in some cases beyond their control that needed help and assistance and that it challenged you as to whether or not you had the capacity to help and want to give, and at the same time, learn quite a bit about yourself. Um, and then Mr. Blitman, who was the other coach in my junior, senior year, was almost the opposite. He was about winning, 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 winning. We practiced all the time. We were undefeated and all of that worked out well. But I was the captain of the team and uh, uh, he pressed me for, for, for leadership. Um, he was the one that said, it's your responsibility to make sure that we practice on Christmas holidays and Thanksgiving and, and keep all of our players uh, uh, excited and, and about playing and willing to sacrifice. What are the sacrifices it takes to win? Um, and, and not win at all costs, but still be, uh, still be, uh, uh, gentlemen about it and to to work hard and to seek the rewards that competition brings. But I guess I would say the person who had the most impact on my life, in spite of the fact that I didn't get to know him well, I did spend some time with him, was a man named Nelson Mandela. And Nelson Mandela, when I met him in the middle 90s, I think it was 92, 93, he had been released from prison. And we, in, he, was, he invited us to come to South Africa, us meaning the NBA and its players. So David Stern, the commissioner, and I, Matumbo and Patrick Ewing, Alonzo Mourning, remember several other players we took with us, were there to serve as an inspiration for higher aspirations. And Nelson Mandela invited us because he perceived that once he became more involved with the country, that one of the major problems he would have with apartheid was bringing the races together. And he thought through sport and basketball and Olympics, et cetera, that he could do that. And the thing that made me think quite a bit about all the things that he represented was when we got a chance to talk to him. My first question was, Simba, you must have been terribly disappointed with all of the people that prevented you, that put you in jail for 27 years. What did you think about that? And he said, no, Charles, I was not. It's not angry, I wasn't disturbed. I learned a lot, but it took him that amount of time to say that once you determine that you must be the element or the agent of change, that you have to be the element and the agent of change. And perhaps this is what he, he, he learned most during that 27 year period, that the people of South Africa were depending on him to be the agent of change. He says, once you understand that, then your personal goals become minimal, that they are placed at the bottom of the list, that you are now advancing and working for the people. That, that is the leadership lesson of being able to, A, diagnose change, but, but most importantly, to deal with the ambiguity that surrounds this change. Um, I learned that 
in the two or three hours that we spent, because it was so interesting at the time, David Stern was sitting there and I was sitting there and we were debating and arguing about a new collective bargaining agreement. And here we are, we didn't have an agreement, but this man was talking about a country and we we're talking about money. And what I hope that came out of that, and David and I had a few conversations about it, is that ultimately we agreed to put off that, that uh, conflict for another year based on the conversation. And David took from that, that NBA players should be more outspoken and that they should be more involved in social justice. Wow. You know, Charles, um, we're, we're so lucky to have Charles Grantham on, on our show. Um, Charles, I was, as you know, I was very fortunate to have a relationship with David um, with David Stern, have him speak at our 76 Capital Sports Innovation Conference in November of 2019, um, unfortunately a month before he passed. Um, and I asked him a similar question about what were some of the things that, you know, leaders and leadership and what impacted him. And he told a very similar story about meeting Nelson Mandela. And, you know, it really did, you're right, had a, it's such an incredible um Mark, you know, it left such an incredible mark on his life, on, on his mindset. Um, and and it's, it's great to hear, you know, what, what you had to say about that. And again, we're at this time right now in, in the United States where we're talking about social justice. We're actually having conversations more than ever about these types of issues. We had the NBA season this year where, you know, in the bubble where the, it's Black Lives Matters was on the court, you know, different types of social justice sayings were on the players' jerseys. Uh, the question of, of of this is not, you know, will this be discussed? But it's going to be discussed. And and yes, the athletes who have the social capital, and the NBA players who are out there that have the the power to actually move people, um, are now more and more interested. And, 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 have, and, and have this platform, and the NBA is helping provide that, and the teams and the league themselves. So it's a really fascinating time as, as in, in, in the world, and hopefully, um, from my opinion, my opinion I'll, I'll ask you, in my opinion, hopefully it will make this world a better place because of that. Where do you see this all going now? Um, you know, we had this season in the bubble. We had this happen. Now we're moving on December 22nd into the next season of the NBA, how do you think this will will it will continue or or will it continue? What what do you think? Well, <clears throat> I think it will continue. I mean, I think the NBA and its players have made a statement here, and and that statement is that it's a priority, not just for the players, but it's a priority for the league. Now, the challenge, however, is that can it also be the challenge of all of its owners. And typically, you know, and I look at this as I see it each time, the, the owners are, are white and the players are black. And what will constitute change here is that the parties getting together to understand that it is not just a race issue, it's the, it's the right thing to do. It was recently the, the Pope invited uh, NBA players to the Vatican, I mean, to show that your purpose is our purpose. But there's still that uncomfortable silence or comfortable silence, that place that we go when we don't want to face the systemic racism. And there's still some owners that, that go there that we don't hear from. We noticed that during the Kaepernick uh, dispute. Now it's taken, it's taken on a much greater stance that the players are seeing its importance and they're also beginning to see that they can become agents of change. It's like the Nelson Mandela story that once you realize that you are and can be the element of change, that agent of change, where do you go with it? What is that next step? And from what Adam says, of course, they're going to go back to closer to business as usual but they have created a coalition, that coalition between players and owners in the league. You notice I say the league owners and players as three groups, not just one, because 
there are a good handful of owners that are still sitting into that comfortable silence area where they don't quite want to face the realities of the systemic racism because it will call for them. And perhaps they are Republicans and possibly real supporters of, of, of the President Trump, and they see that division and aren't willing to step in that space. And I think what this is going to call for is forget about your party affiliation. And it, it, this is the right thing to do. So, so for once, can we both, as Democrats, Republicans, get together and say, this is the thing that we can do as partners. Uh, we can do this together. And if we can do that together and use our political lobby, because you know as well as I do that the political lobby that sits with the NBA as a brand and its billionaire owners, that that with the players can institute congressional change. And it's that kind of change that I think is forthcoming. I, I really do believe that. Planning your next corporate event or need branding apparel for your business? RushorderTees.com is Philadelphia's home for custom apparel. Rush Order Tees can handle any order on any deadline. Give them a call today at 1-800-620-1233 or start designing online in their state-of-the-art design studio at RushOrderTees.com. Well, you've made some incredible change in your in your career. You did some amazing things. I mean, one of the things that uh, I'd, I'd love to to hear a little more uh, some background on is what you did with the Dream Team back in 1992, and 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 what happened from on a global stage and how you were able to really help you know basketball and the NBA become a global sport. Well, I think the the again, it's uh, it's that question. I believe the challenge of being an instrument of change on the one hand, it's also that challenge that says as leadership, can you diagnose change um, and, and can you deal with all the ambiguity and ambiguity that surrounds that change? And at that particular time, the world of basketball was asking for NBA players to participate. Uh, and one of the challenges with the, with the league and its owners was uh, we have guaranteed contract with our young players. And if, in fact, they are injured in the Olympics, who's going to be responsible for those contracts? And it was clear from, from where we stood or from where I stood that this was something that the teams had to maintain a responsibility, that they could not allow and expect our players to play in a worldwide competition without their contracts being guaranteed and secured. That was one thing. And the second thing was that while this may present uh, a, a, a marketing opportunity for the NBA, and the NBA can, can become far more worldwide in developing its marketing and developing its uh, uh, marketing opportunities and promotion and new television contracts for international exposure, that the players were not going to do this for free. And it was my, my point and input there that since there were three stakeholders here, uh, the Olympics, uh, the NBA, and its players, that our players were, would be entitled to one-third, one-third, one-third split of the revenue that would be generated uh, 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 by, the, by this relationship. And uh, it all worked out to be exactly what we thought and that it was a dominance of the players in the Olympics. Uh, and at the same time, it increased a couple of things. One, it increased interest worldwide in NBA basketball, but it also increased our diversity from the standpoint of international players. There are many, many players who will sit and tell you that that dream team performance in Barcelona really motivated them to become NBA players. Well, it was, I'll never forget, you know, watching that. I mean, I, I was, you know, watching the, the NBA players in, in Barcelona. I mean, as it, they were, 
they were like rock stars walking around town and the stories that Michael Jordan talks about and Magic Johnson and, and Charles Barkley and just those guys must, it must have been incredible. Well, one of the things they probably don't talk much about, which was very interesting, is that the best games that I've ever seen play basketball were the scrimmages, the, the scrimmages between the first team or the second team. And really, I mean, it didn't matter. You got, you got 12 guys that were, were really phenomenal. Uh, Christian Leitner was the only college player on the team at the time. And I remember talking to him. I said, well, Christian, look, I think you and I may play a lot of tennis. I don't know how much basketball you're going to play here. But it was great fun. The guys really, uh, uh, you know, really, I think, absorbed the moment, of the, the importance of the moment. Um, uh, but those games between uh, Magic and Michael, would end up with either Magic or Michael with the ball, with the team being up one or down one. And those were the best basketball games I could possibly ever think about seeing. It was phenomenal when, when they had the, the great, you know, 30 for 30 series on, right? It, you know, it, it actually wasn't, it wasn't, you know, during the uh, beginning of the pandemic, you know, with, with Michael Jordan and really, you know, that last season of the Bulls, right? I mean, the last dance and, you know, there was a little couple clips of some of those games with Larry Bird and, you know, yeah. just unbelievable, you know, and David Robinson on that team. I mean, just just yeah. such, such amazing players. Amazing games, amazing competition. It developed a bond between those 12 players. You know, it's funny because one of the things I used to do, uh, Larry and I used to do at that time, I was with the Players Union, is every summer we would take the players uh, somewhere in the world to play. Uh, whether it was China, we were the first to take a, a group of all-star players to China back in 1980. But it, it offered an opportunity for the players to get to know each other in a different way than just competing on the floor. And the, their families were brought together. They had to understand that they got a better understanding of, rather, of, of how important it was uh, that togetherness was because every four or five or six years we were going to negotiate a new deal with the NBA and it was important that the players are unified on some of these economic issues. When you think about that, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. I mean, and, and I'd love to ask this, you know, about, about kind of the players today and the players that you, you dealt with back in the, you know, seventies, eighties and nineties. Um, you know, we're really lucky to have Charles Grantham, the director of the center of sport management at Seton Hall Stillman school of business on our 76 capital leadership series. And Charles, I mean, when you think about today's athlete, um, what they're what they can do from a social for social you know their social capital what they how they can use their voice their interests off the court uh, the amount of amount of just capital the amount of money that they make and what they want to do um, off the court as well as on the court did you see that as much with the players of the past or how, how do you sort of see how things are going today well, social media certainly changed the dynamic of, of the two worlds. I mean, the players uh, back in the 70s and 80s all stood for some of the very same things that we're seeing demonstrated by players today, except that clearly the, the social media concept was lacking at that time and had no way to really get all those kinds of things out there. But today you can see that. And I think the interesting thing that I, that I see with the today's players, and I think I may have mentioned that uh, I still advise and talk to several of them, Tobias Harris being one place with the Sixers, but consistently they all, they all feel a, gr a great debt to those who played before them because they know they set the foundation by which they're able to perform at this level, generate this type of revenue, and at the same time have that kind of impact, that they recognize that, that uh, Will Chamberlain, Oscar Robertson, and others laid the groundwork for what they are experiencing in the league today, that uh, Spencer Haywood, who fought the conflict of eligibility and prevailed and set the tone for 
players coming directly from high school into college, I mean, high school into the pros. And uh, even though that there's now the one and done, I think ultimately that may be changed, but it, it's, it opened that opportunity for players to advance based on the uniqueness of their talent. And I don't, I can't think of a player that didn't recognize whether it's 1975 or 2020, that they had an obligation to give back to their community in some form or fashion. And all of them have found comfort in being able to do that and recognizing that the communities from which they come and the way in which they're being policed today, extremely important and where they can set the tone and see a change happen. Uh, that's the challenge as we discussed, but now it's time for players to, to share the ball, so to speak. In other words, whether it's Eric Holder or whether it's NAACP National Defense Fund, they're the people now that we have to share this movement and, and, and look to them for guidance as to how you turn this into legislation. Absolutely. And, and you know, one thing, you know, I, I think that's 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 really insightful. And, I, and I'd also love to understand from a business perspective. Right. I mean, certainly the, the social side and philanthropic side are so, so important. But how do you do you see a difference in today's players from a business, their interest in business as compared to the players in the in the 70s and 80s? Uh, you know, it's, it's, it, I think the interest is there. It's a little more opportunity now. And a lot of that has to do, again, with the type of revenue that's being generated. Um, but, uh, I, you know, I'm consistently a believer that the, the athlete of the 70s and 80s not only laid the foundation but they had the motivation to do similar things. They helped in different ways. If, if you go back and, and, and think about all those players, and if you ask any one of them, their connection to the community, whether it's with the YMCA, whether it's with the boys club, whether it's with um, uh, different community groups and, and election, they did that then. It's just that quite frankly, they weren't rewarded as well as they are today and primarily do to the social media. But speaking of that business aspect again, um, that's why it's so important that the owners themselves, the billionaire businessmen owners, recognize that by doing things with the players and the platforms that they have, that this is good for business, that return on investment this is good for business. It's good for business to the, the social justice issue that as you move forward and see some of these uh, laws changed and to eliminate as well as you can the systemic racism, that's going to be better for business. And I, it, I, I think that if there's a if there's a tension there, that's where it is, because some of the multi-billionaire owners perceive that Black Lives Matter, the label, the, the social justice issues may be harming their product. And at the end of the day, I think they will begin to see that it's going to be best for business, that, uh, that the value of your franchise is going to increase, that the, the, the tensions that are being created uh, once we face them and deal with them, it's, it's going to improve your relationships with the various communities. Well, absolutely. And you think about, you know, business, you think about all, you know, all the crazy things, the good, the bad um, that have happened in 2020. Another issue that has really come to the forefront because it's about to happen again, happen in collegiate sports is the whole NIL issue the name, image, and likeness side of things. So, you know, we're, as, 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 as people in the sports business and sports industry, uh, we know we know it at NIL. Um, and this name, image, and likeness situation where um, a lot of people look at, you know, college athletes as student athletes. 
and that they get a college, you know, they get a college scholarship. They get to go to school for free. So they get to play basketball or football or whatever sport it is. That's good enough. And we could take advantage of them as much as we want, um, meaning we, the, the universities themselves or, or the NCAA, and that's okay because they, they get an education. Well, now with name, image, and likeness, um, the rabbit's out of the hat and things are and a lot, lot's going to change. So I'd love to get your thoughts on that. I know you're very outspoken on that issue and, and uh, you know, see how, how you, how you see how that will potentially play out. Well, again, I see it as a, a business proposition. You know, if I go back to 1980, the, uh, the NBA finals at the time was the 76ers and the Lakers, I believe were shown tape delay. And the, what was facing and our, our attendance was down, the value franchises were down. And what, what we were looking at here is how do we resolve going forward the business and how could both players and owners, can we take a look at this outside force that was affecting us and how can we deal with this as a group and move the ball forward? Uh, uh, and so it was a more, it, was, it, it wasn't just strictly about how do we share the money? It was how do we keep the business going? And therefore we came up with this revenue sharing concept, including a salary cap, for example. And there was a sacrifice among the players. And, and we did make some adjustments that would allow players to still become free agents and, and hit an open market, et cetera, et cetera. I see the same thing sort of happening today because of the pandemic, we're faced with this, with this obstacle with this these tremendous losses but at the same time it's shining a bright light on the inequity and the lack of protection of our student athletes and it it only com compounds that that argument about whether or not the college athletes and particularly the power five conferences that generate somewhere between 11 and 14 billion dollars a year how can the two sides continue to exist without exploitation, without discrimination. And it, it suggests to me that the same model that we created, a revenue sharing model with a salary cap, is applicable today at college level, at the university level, because it has been consistently used over these last two decades, meaning that they have a revenue sharing system the, the, the NCAA shares revenue with the various conferences. The conferences share revenue with the various uh, universities. That they are nonprofit educational institutions, but they're running for-profit sports businesses. When you look at both the, the, the two generating sports, uh, revenue generating sports of football and basketball, at the major Power Five conference, they are run like franchises that the athletic directors are well compensated, just like our general managers are, that the presidents of universities, the coaches, if you can pay a coach $94 million over 10 years, I think your business is doing pretty well. So what is that revenue share and where's the balance and how do you do that for all of these student athletes that's fair and reasonable and, and equitable? And I've only su always suggested that it's the group license. It's no different than the group license that we created for the dream team, that they got 33% of the revenue and they divided it equally among the players on the team. Now, most of them gave it back, okay? But the point is that that model can work at the college level as well, provided, provided that those who run the NCAA, and whether it's the Knight Commission or others, began to recognize and see these young, talented student athletes as partners, as partners in a venture, as partners in a business. They resent, they will not do that simply because many of them feel is that they should do as they tell them to do and that they are still students and they're, they're young people that need to be directed. No, 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 no. They are the biggest asset that you have in your business and that they're generating the $14 billion or so and that everyone seems to be doing well in this business. 
except the student athlete, because you've created this thing called the hard salary cap. And that hard salary cap is room, board, books, tuition, and cost of attendance, and not a penny more. Otherwise, you're violating the principles of the NCAA. And by the way, the courts have come back and say, hold it, in NCAA. You're not bigger than the law. That's price fixing. Okay, so so the we have reached a time where the clash is about to happen because of the state laws that require or going to require that they that the student athlete be compensated for the use of this name image and likeness. Yeah, I think what it's really interesting how you 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 talk about it from a group licensing perspective because right now, I think it is it's it, the way that it's it, a lot of the groups are talking about name, image, and likeness right now. It's giving the opportunity for students, student athletes to go out and quote unquote, make money, right? And, and I think that they're already making money in what they're doing on the court, on the field. But at the, now they're saying, okay, you, you can do more, which is great. But, well, but it doesn't hit the point. You know, see, yes. in other words, what I'm saying to you yes. is that they've done that as an initial negotiated offer, because you and I both know that if, if you can use your name, image and likeness, but you can't use the university logo, you're not going to make any money because there's no one that wants you to go out and just promote a product without the use of the Notre Dame lock, the logo or the University of Michigan's logo, et cetera. So to me, it's that guys, we hear what you're saying, but that's like an initial offer in a negotiation. Now, the question will be the clash, the clash. And, and, and my point is that when you look at the stakeholders involved here, that that the share of revenue that would be generated for these student athletes on an equal basis, if you distributed it, cover their medical expenses and gave them a trust fund that they couldn't access until they actually got their degrees, then that would satisfy all this dispute that they have about individual likeness. Um, that is not going to, that's not going to improve uh, the, their business situation. It's very interesting the way you talk about the individual likeness. I think that that's something that, you know, a lot of people are, are you know, talking about now. They're so excited. All of a sudden, the, the quarterback, the gymnast, the, you know, the, 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 uh, the star, you know, basketball player can go out and, and, and make money. Right. But at this, but that's such a small piece of what well, well, we found out. We found out one simple thing when we started fighting, David Stern and I started fighting over these kinds of things. We talk about name, image, and likeness, and there's one thing that you recognize pretty quickly, that uh, Mr. Stern, you have the logo and the brand. Mr. Grantham, you've got the asset. So my guys can't necessarily make a whole lot of money without having the New York Knicks logo or the NBA brand, but you can't make as much money without our players. So it sounds to me like we have to have a group license. Okay, and essentially, when we came to that understanding and created this group licensing concept that players would then be compensated once they stopped playing, for example, they would get X number of dollars per year that they've been in the league. And it, it, was, a, it, was, it was sort of an, an easy way of, of coming to grips with that, that problem. And the NCAA is at the same position, the same spot that without the use of the logo, the individual likeness would be limited, as you point out, to maybe the star quarterback and maybe the high, the high score on the basketball team. But it's as a group, as a group, that they can use the university likeness and the player, that's got value to it because people will want to use that. They just haven't concluded that they want to share. They know this. And by the way, the reason they know all of this is because the same lawyers that represent the NCAA, they represent the NBA. They represent the NFL. They represent Major League Baseball. They represent the National Hockey League. So it's not like they're not familiar with the group license and the value of the group license versus the individual license. 
Fascinating. Charles, it's really been amazing having you on the show. And, you know, one last thing on that. I mean, so, you know, one of the things that we're all about at 76 Capital is is getting things done, right? And, and really making things happen and, and thinking about, you know, what is the next, next thing and how to really, how, how to make it happen, how to work with entrepreneurs and other people that can can get these things done. And so using that as an, as an example, kind of around the NIL issue, like who's going to get it done? You know, who, who will it will it be the the law firms that represent you know, who, who who who's going to who is it a single person? Is it going to be a, a university president? You know, who, what do you how do you think the who's going to kind of make that happen? Well, right now it's sitting with Congress because uh, the NCA would like to see a federal bill because they have to respond to first the California state law, which I think goes into effect in 21 or 22 that's going to allow individual student athletes to be compensated for the use of their name, image, and likeness. Um, but name, image, and likeness is the foundation by which the NCAA has been able to command such a large amount of revenue from broadcasters. Don't forget the, the NCAA has used the group license, okay, the group license to to, to do what? To, to gain a broadcast contract for a billion dollars. They had to use the individual likenesses of all the young people that are playing, that are in the uniforms, that develop the content for the broadcast business. And they are compensated well for that. All I'm suggesting is that the, the, the unique athletes, the talented athletes that make up that group should be compensated in a fair and share way for the use of their name, image, and likeness. It's the nature of our sports business, name, image, and likeness. Whether it's the NFL that you see, the NFL um, the NFL brand and its team brands, the NBA, it's, it's, its brand, its team brands, they are not as valuable without the use of the talented athletes that wear them. Well, I think that's a great place to to end this conversation. We certainly have, there's so many more things that we can you know, do to help each other and, and truly help make this world a better place. Charles Grantham, thank you so much for joining us on our 76 Capital Leadership You're Series. quite welcome, Wayne. I enjoyed it and uh, look to talk to you some other time in the future. Well, thanks again. And, and if you, for all of you out there, please subscribe to our 76 Capital Leadership Podcast. You can also find the video cast on YouTube and all the great shows that we've done. Again, we've just wrapped up with Charles Grantham, director of the Center for Sport Management at Seton Hall University, Stillman School of Business. Not only is he a Hall of Famer from a basketball perspective, but he's a Hall of Fame person, and we're really fortunate and really great great to have you on our show. Thanks so much, Charles. Thank you so much. And, And everyone have a great day. All right, you too. In Philadelphia, reputation is key. No one knows that better than RushOrderTees.com. Rush Order Tees has proudly printed high-quality custom apparel in Philly since they started in 2002. They take printing as seriously as their love for Philly sports, cheesesteaks, and that statue outside the art museum. No matter the order size or deadline, Rush Order Tees has you covered. Start your design today online or give them a call at 1-800-620-1233, rushordertees.com, Philadelphia's home for custom apparel.